heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. We are back. It is Wine Crush Podcast. We are Season 5, Episode um, which is, again, kind of hard to believe. Welcome to the new year. We are starting 2022 with a bang. We've got Todd with Long Play Wine, and we have Sue and Nick with Bluebird Hill Cellars Winery Vineyard, one of the three. Yep, probably should have clarified that before we started, but we are going to start with Todd today. I am a lover of a good story and someone who has started somewhere before the wine industry in, a, I don't know, an industry completely separate. So welcome to the show, Todd from Long Play Wine, and he's going to tell us all about himself. Well, that's, <laughs> that's hard, to, hard to do in only 25 minutes. I grow grapes. I consider that my main role in this project. I started out, people ask me how I got into wine, and I blame it on my French high school teacher, Kathy Davis, because she just instilled this interest in French for me. And then I went to France after college on my backpacking tour of Europe. And I noticed that the French would spend $200 on their meal and $50 on their hotel. And the Americans would spend $50 on their meal and $200 on the hotel. And I thought the French had it right. And um, I studied wine in France as well, because I wanted to go back and study French. And um, as an elective, I took wine. And That's not a bad elective to take. No. Is that is, even, I didn't know that was an elective. If, well, if that was a, one, I, I would have taken that too. in France and, and you, in the morning you would do like intense grammar. In the afternoon you had electives. And one of my electives, one term was wine. But we studied wine from an academic perspective, not how to make it or anything, but what grapes go in what, what's the difference between a cru bourgeois and a grand cru classé and that kind of stuff. And then the other elective I took was film and French cinema because I loved I love movies. What an interesting combination. That's like almost like the best of both worlds. You got entertainment and what to drink while you're being entertained. Yeah. And then um, I worked for the government for about a little over 10 years and traveled the world. And that's why I took the job. I, I read this 13-page job announcement for the International Trade Administration and I basically distilled it down to see the world and so I traveled extensively, lived in D.C. for five years, lived in Abidjan for a couple of years, and Brussels for a couple of years, and San Francisco for a couple of years. And I think that's where, like, when we were talking about this at the winery, you know, when I came out, it seems like forever ago, but I think it was before harvest, so late summer. Mm -hmm. The fact that you had done so much traveling with this government job was just so astounding to me. I'm like, what a, if you're going to work for the government, well, and if you're going to travel, travel to certain parts of the world, you definitely want the diplomatic passport. Because when, when you're in Gabon in the back country or Cameroon or something, it's nice to have that certainty that the federal government might be able to help you out if you were to get kidnapped or something like that. That's probably actually a good idea to make sure you kind of have that yeah. as a backup plan mm -hmm. just in case. Yeah. Where is the first place you just said? Ga Gabon? Gabon. Yeah. What is where where and what is it's that? It's right next to Cameroon. It's a tiny little country. Actually beautiful. Hmm. Beautiful people too. 
Yeah. You can see how worldly I am not since yeah. I don't know where that's at, but I'll have to look it up now. Yeah. So I don't we think I'll go visit. out there without the diplomats. Well, and, and when we were in Africa, we took my wife and I took our what we call our pre-honeymoon down to South Africa and went wine tasting. And that was just blew our minds. Just so such amazing wine country. Just beautiful. Yeah. And beautiful wines too. And I've had a few South African wines and they are completely just, they're very interesting and I've heard amazing things about that. So that's on the bucket list. Just haven't mm-hmm. got, haven't Worth even come it. near quite there yet on the list. So that's somewhere in the future. Yeah. And travel to Chile, travel to Italy, travel to Austria. Th- those were the trips I would kind of bid on, if you will, is the ones that would go to interesting wine regions. So that's what I planned my career around was tasting different wines and visiting different wine countries. Very smart man. Nice, nice work. That's, yeah. I mean, I wish I would have thought about when I was younger. So after a little more than 10 years with the government, um, you either have to fish or cut bait because the pension is looming large on the horizon and you're chained to your desk after year 11, pretty much. So that's when I said, I don't know if I can stick this out for another 10 years, especially given the events that were happening during that period of 2003. I was at the embassy, actually at the U.S. Mission to the European Union in Brussels, and there were you know, protests outside the, the building and stuff like that due to the Iraq conflict. And I knew I wouldn't get Paris after Brussels. Usually you get a hardship assignment after that, and often that's unaccompanied, and we were planning to have a baby. So I said, it's time for a change of career. And um, former diplomat, you almost have to make your own career because there's not a lot of openings out there. So... That's I un- said, oh, understandable. Yeah, put down some roots. <laughs> you go from being a diplomat <laughs> to a farmer. That's like going from one side to the other. But I, I love farming. So, you know, I think it's a yeah. great idea, but I probably wouldn't have thought that would have been your first choice other than the wine. Yeah, I so loved wine. So that had to have been what kind of brought it, you back around. Well, and when I visited vineyards around the world, I always just loved seeing the vineyards. I mean, the vineyards were much more interesting to me than anything else to do with the wine. And, and I just wanted to grow grapes and sell grapes when I bought the vineyard. And that's what I did the first year. <laughs> and then I realized that if you make wine, you get invited to better parties. Like I've, I've done IPNC twice, and that was like the highlight of my life in some ways. And also we've poured my wines at Coachella twice. And that was like the most fun I've had. That's just so fun. The dinners and the just sharing your wine with people, it's neat. So... I want to talk about that a little bit more later, but I want to get back into the fact that you ended up in Oregon. So you've traveled the entire world now in every, almost every grape growing region possible between South America, Asia, Asia? Were you in Asia? I've been to China and had Chinese wine. <laughs> and back then it was nothing to write home about. I do have this like dream of a Tasmania, New Zealand trip, but I haven't done it yet. So. I want to see the pictures and hear all about it when you finally do that, because that's definitely on that same bucket list that South Africa hit. So with all the places that you've actually traveled and vineyards that you've, you know, you've visited, wines that you've tasted, what brought you back to Oregon of all places? Pinot Noir. Just, yeah. I would, Is it that uh, simple? Yeah. A bottle of Demandroin, 1999, I think it was, or something like that. I forget the vintage it was actually, but yeah. It was a beautiful bottle of wine when we lived in San Francisco, and it's just, man. It's interesting how you find that 
it wine, that wine that like literally like lights your senses on fire, like lights your soul on fire. And you're like, oh my God, that's it. That's what I want to do. Or Mm -hmm. that's why I've decided I like X, Y, or Z. So out of every place you've gone, you were in San Francisco, had a bottle of Pinot Noir, and now you're here. That's so simple. It seems Mm -hmm. like it's too simple. But that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I love it. It's just, you know, some people have these long stories about how X hit Y and they ran into a B that took them to C. But mm-hmm. yours is just so simple and elegant. So when you were looking for a vineyard, there's, again, lots of places in Oregon to find a vineyard. How did you find the one that you're at? Why did you find the one you're at? Yeah, so random. We We actually, my wife and I had come down here and toured the wine country with a realtor and looked at several properties, some developed, some undeveloped, and considered a few, but none of them really spoke to us that much. And then I was surfing the internet at home. I was, we were up in Seattle, which is where I was raised. And we saw, I saw like a Century 21, I think it was, just on their web page, Vineyard for Sale. And it turned out it was a 50-acre parcel that was part of the old uh, Rex Hill properties off of Hillside Drive there. And Rex Hill at the time was being sold from by, by Paul Hart and Jan Jacob to A to Z Wineworks. And they needed to shed some properties to make it a more bite-sized purchase. This is my interpretation. I don't know this for a fact. That's how I read it and heard. And so... This just popped up and I called the realtor that we had toured with, Mike McLean, and said, you know, what do you think of this? And he said, looks like it grows grapes. And so I came down and it's just, it's just a really neat piece of land. It just really is beautiful. Yeah. And so bought it and it's close enough to Newburgh that, well, part of the deal was I wanted to stay married. And it's my always wife, a great goal, yeah. <laughs> especially if you like the person. And, and my wife wanted to be a little closer to civilization than say we would have been in Walla Walla or out in the North Sonoma County areas that we had kind of considered and Newburgh. This was really a nice spot. So Let's talk about the vineyard just a little bit because mm-hmm. I before we get into actual wine, I want to kind of set the picture for the vineyard itself. You know, you said it's about 50 acres. It's in Newburgh. Is it all Pinot? Is it a mix of things at this point in time? I mean, what was the true draw to it? I mean, a lot of times like the dirt, the area speaks to you. It has its own personality. So tell me about this piece. Yeah. So it's I I liken it to kind of a staircase because it has like a bench and then a slope and then a bench and then a slope. And each bench has its own soil type, really. At the top, it's this beautiful jewelry soil that just I liken it to cake batter that's dry. You know what I mean? And then it gets wet and it just like clumps up and sticks to your boots and, you know, it gets 10 pounds on each boot. It's just amazing. And you can dig all day there and not find a rock. And then you go a little further down and you hit this layer of cobble. And it's like just a cobblestone street with the vines growing through it, which is something that is both wonderful and challenging about my site is it's hard to say, oh, this is Leah's Vineyard. It's going to taste like this. There is a common thread to the vineyard, but it definitely has a lot of variation within it because of the way Shehalem Mountain sort of and Bald Peak fell down after the Missoula floods and became a scrabble board of different soils. So you've got yellow clay, you've got red clay, you've got cobble, you've got sort of a brown dirt section over on the east side, and a lot of 
different aspects too and exposures. One thing about the site is it definitely is, it's sort of a hump, so it definitely gets a lot of breeze. It stays cool in the evenings in the summer, which I think is a, a real benefit to the site. And we've got it planted to Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So, so are all those Pinot Noirs just, I'm assuming they're different clones? Yeah, we've got eight clones of Pinot Noir. Thanks, Sam. And, <laughs> and then the Chardonnay, I just put in two new acres of Chardonnay, and it's about six different clones. So it'll be like one row will be 76, one row 95, and then another row 108. And then, But it's not symmetrical in that I've got a lot more 75, 76, and 95 than I do some of the other ones. I only have like two rows of a couple of the clones. So of all the Pinot clones, what's your favorite? Everybody has their favorite. It's like the favorite child. Yeah. Don't tell anybody else, but it's the Vadensville. It's just, I hear that um, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's just so, well, it makes such beautiful wine. It makes We bottle it solo in a wine called High Tone. But the, the block of Vadensville that I farm for High Tone, and I call it High Tone when it goes in the fermenter, is just has so much personality. It's got a little undulation to it. So you've got this high spot that kind of struggles. And then you've got the little dip that's got a little too much vigor. So you're always fighting the laterals on there. And I'm constantly pulling leaves and laterals from that zone, managing the fruit load for each vine specifically, because each vine is so different. And it's just a neat spot. And it's right next to the shed. So it's close to where I start my day. And a lot of times I'll start my day there and I'll just end my day there because I get buried. I can't see the forest for the trees and I'll end up... uh, spending my whole day in the high-tone block. But, you know, that's how it works. There's always a start and an end to a day. So if you start in the same spot, you never get lost. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's rewarding because when you're done with that row, it looks so perfect when all the shoots are just perfectly aligned and everything. And it just, my compulsion to make things neat, let's say, is really satisfied in that block. It's a very satisfying block. I think that's a great place to, pause and stop and I don't have any of that high tone in my glass I'm still finishing ah. the the explicit lyrics that we're going to talk about next so everybody stop where you're at go find your wine refill your glass and we'll be right back I think everybody's refreshed now, so it's time to start talking about wine with Todd and the cool new winery that they just moved into. The one thing that I want to talk about a little bit before we get too deep into it is that you have a theme that is on your labels and it kind of goes into the winery. And so I want you to talk about that because if I try to describe it, it's going to get butchered all to hell. And we don't want to do that. We want to put it in the nicest light possible because it is really quite cool. So take it away. Let's talk wine and winery. Yeah. So the wine is called long play and I call it long play because I say wine is kind of like music. It's a question of taste. And I think old school, I mean, when I listen to music, it's sixties and seventies rock mostly or jazz. And I think there's something to be said for no overdubbing and no remixing and having something that's more authentic. And that's my goal with the wine is to be true to the source and not overly polished. And so a little more old school. That's why it's called long play. Analog wine for a digital world. 
no overdubbing, no remixing. That's sort of our... <laughs> I love it. So. <laughs> yeah, I think when I first saw Long Play, I just had seen the name and I'm like, huh, this sounds like, like a football analogy of some yeah, sort, no, but I was completely that's wrong. A, that's an image of the turntable on the labels. Yeah, and, you know, no auto-tune. No, I, I love it because when I was at the winery and met you and Sam there... And Sam, just so you know, because I've said a couple times now, is the one kicking Todd when he does says something inaccurate, but really runs the tasting room and kind of keeps things. She's the brains. She's amazing. So anyhow, I'm so glad she joined you uh, today. So anyways, when I was there, you actually have quite the collection of, I call it vinyl. Other people call it LPs. Some people call it records. I don't know, but I love that old school. It's just a different sound and it's a different feel. Well, and I, I like to listen to a whole album because usually the songs are arranged with some degree of intention, you know, mm-hmm. and you have the B-side that kind of lets you calm down after the hits and, and things like that. And it's nice to listen to a whole album. And and I also love like the way some albums are like a discrete chapter in an artist's life. You can hear how each album, they evolve in their progression and their musical, you know, abilities or vision. So, yeah. I can see the connection between wine and music when you kind of talk about it that way and kind of breaking down the album like that is so interesting. So nice, nice work. And like there's songs that transport you to a particular place. When you hear that song, you recall where you were. And and wine can do that same kind of emotional connection that's it's very visceral. It can just sort of capture the moment and make it special, right? I I totally agree. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that are like that in life. I mean, different smells, you know, different mm-hmm. foods, different sounds, and you know, obviously, and we've caught a lot of that within the wine. You know, it's it's there's a lot of analogies that can go into how people look at wine, and I didn't really realize that when I first started in this journey. I just thought it was just some liquid that they crushed up and stuck in a bottle, and you know, but it, there's so much to it. And the reason, I mean why I love this so much in the podcast is because it's bringing these sort of like colorful conversations and kind of a down-to-earthness to wine to where it doesn't have to be this elaborate, elitist, you know, type product that so many people are afraid of. We're talking about dirt. We're talking about wine compared to music. We're talking about, <laughs> I don't know. Licking your phone during harvest. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, not sticky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, all, phone, all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you actually talk to a true winemaker or somebody that works in the cellar or whatever, it is a sticky, gooey, non-romantic mess most of the time because it's sugar. I mean, and it, it's an amazing, it's amazing thing. Yeah. So for the first few weeks, it's sugar. Yes, yeah. it's just, but it's still sticky nonetheless, and it stains your clothes and your teeth and everything else. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your style of wine, because uh, now we've talked all the way around the wine. Let's talk about the actual wine itself. We know you're not making more than Pinot. You're making Chardonnay. You have several clones, but I know you have other things in there. Yeah, so we make a Chardonnay. We try to just keep it clean, and I, I'm working on actually... It, it's taking me a long time because I only make like two barrels of Chardonnay a year. This year we only did one, I think. It's an older block and that's why I planted the new plantings. So Chardonnay, I'm still kind of searching, but it's usually no, there's never any new oak in it and it's always very clean and fresh. The Pinot Noir, what I try to do is capture the vineyard in the bottle as best I can. And each corner of that vineyard is different and I like to show that to the extent possible. We also do a bottling that's 100% whole cluster, which I just find to be a kind of a blast. I love making it, and it's neat to see what that does with the same vineyard, roughly the same grapes as another bottling we do, 
but having it whole cluster versus not whole cluster. And can yeah. can we stop really quick? Because sometimes you know we say things that people that aren't wine people don't fully truly uh, understand yeah. what you mean. So mm-hmm. let's define whole cluster minus you know the difference between whole cluster and not whole cluster. Yeah. So normally we will run our grapes through what's called a destimmer, and it gently rolls the grapes off of the cluster, and only the berries, the whole berries, will go into the fermenter. But with the whole cluster, we just roll that distimmer to the side and put the the whole cluster of grapes with the stem and everything into the fermenter and pile it high. I call it like the Matterhorn is what we call the fermenter, I think. And it uh, it'll settle down as the grapes start to macerate, and then um, you get those stemmy notes in the wine. And the argument there, and I think it was Greg Sanders at White Rose, whom I used to sell grapes to. His argument was that when the monks were selecting the best Pinot Noir cultivars to grow, they didn't have these stemmers back then in the 1500s and whatnot. So they were fermenting with the stems and they wanted stems that were tasty. And so I kind of, uh, that resonated with me. It's so interesting listening to these little side stories about the monks and the, this, you know, this in France and whatever, because you got to remember that, I mean, wine's being made for hundreds of years, thousand plus years. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, they didn't do it the way that you guys are doing it now. So, well, but, it's, but they did kind of, I mean, this is what I also say is I say it's not rocket science, you know, I, I, I don't get too caught up in the numbers because how many times did the monks run their pH and everything like that? It's like, you know, you just got to kind of see to the pants it sometimes. And I think you make a better wine than if you're, again, back to the auto-tune and overdubbing analogy, I think you have more authenticity if you kind of just let the wine make itself. And that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. no, I love it. So what else are we looking to drink in the the um, tasting room besides the Pinot and the, the Chardonnay? Well, we do Pinot Noir, we do a Chardonnay, we do Rosé, but of the Pinots, we tend to do like four or five bottlings a year. Although in 2020, we only did one bottling. And that was the explicit lyrics <laughs> label that right. my assistant has been looking at for months because it's been sitting on my desk since I came and saw you guys. And she's like, what is that? I'm yeah. like, so in 2020, we had the fires and the smoke and I was worried. And I had some customers cancel their grape contracts because I sell more than half my fruit. And so we left a lot of fruit hanging in the vineyard, but I made a bit of wine. I didn't know what it would turn out to be. And I was afraid to put the long play label on it. And so I called it explicit lyrics because that was sort of my mood at the time. Um, on the back of the label, it says, hope is the enemy, yeah. <laughs> which is paraphrasing Ted Lemon of Literai down in California, who said, when it comes to smoke taint, hope is your enemy. And we did as little as possible to the wine, really. We didn't fight it. We just sort of embraced it. I don't think the wine tastes that smoky. I think it's very fresh and just um, gulpable and a very, very drinkable wine. It's not, it, we didn't strive for greatness with it necessarily. It's the whole vineyard in the bottle and it's priced approachably more, a little, yeah. It was my worst vintage in terms of uh, the accountants, the perspective. The yeah. <laughs> Got it. And it's, I would say that we we just tasted the bottle. You don't taste any smoke on it necessarily. You know, unless you have some finite palate, you might be able to find some of it. But a lot of people are afraid of the 2020 vintage because of the smoke. And I would say, right. don't be afraid. Yeah. The power of suggestion is is definitely there with some people. But I think it's if you 
I've I've received notes from people around the country who've bought the wine sight unseen, basically club members. Um, I didn't include it in a club shipment because I was kind of afraid to, and but I had some buy it, and they've they sent me notes, really nice notes that say they enjoyed the wine and bought more, and that's super rewarding. The second purchase is better than the first with uh, with a winery. I yeah, think. you really can't ask for better than that. Mm-hmm. So we want to know where to find you because you do have a brand new tasting room and winery. Yeah, we have a fancy building after being tossed from place to place and making wine sort of peripatetic, not the word, strike that. Um, as like a wandering winemaker where I was, um, I started at 12th and Maple, then I ended up at uh, J. Christopher, which was a beautiful facility. Then they outgrew having tenants and I went to Todd Hamina and Groshaw Cellars. And then I said, you know, it's just too hard making wine in a different facility every year or two. It was go big or go home time, and I decided just to buy a piece of land and build a winery. So we built a winery at 888 Industrial Parkway in Newburgh, right next to the bypass. It's super convenient to the vineyards and to home and to utilities and trucks and things like that for bottles. And we also have a website, www.longplaywine.com. You can find you on Facebook, find you on Instagram. Yep, longplay underscore wine on Instagram. Anywhere else? TikTok? No, Not yet. Not yet. After our conversation After, today, yeah, I bet TikTok me. is going to uh-huh. be inspired tomorrow. Okay. So last question of the day. Uh-huh. You have the choice of taking one person, one bottle of wine, and one snack to like a uh-huh. deserted island, desert island, however you want to say it, somewhere where there's nobody else there. Who are you going to take? What are you going to eat? What wine are you going to drink with your snack? Okay. So the snack would probably be duck confit. <laughs> If that's a snack. Sure. <laughs> and There's no the, definition on the, the snack. Wine, I, think, I think the wine would be a high tone for sure. Um, maybe the 11 high tone just because I only have a couple bottles left. And that makes it special. And the person I would want to talk to Elvis Costello because he's been there for like every chapter of my life from when I bought his Armed Forces album after seeing him on Saturday Night Live back in 1979. It was like one of the first LPs I bought really. And every one of his records has just been a chapter in my life where I would just wear the grooves out on each album. And and it's a chapter in his life. His albums are very distinctive one from the other. So, yeah, I'd like to talk to him about those. I love these questions because you just never know who you're going to get. So, Todd, thank you for coming and hanging out with us for the day. Thank you for bringing Sam and the wine. And um, we will see you guys fairly soon. Okay. Next up, we have Sue and Nick from Bluebird Hill. We will be right back. We are back and we are with Sue and Nick with Bluebird Hill Cellars. I clarified this time, right? Right. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, good. Well, welcome to the both of you. I think I probably went and saw you the same week I went out and saw Todd and Sam. So it's been a while since I've seen the both of you. Happened quickly. It happened yeah. really quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harvest, holidays, and here we are in 2022. It's funny because I didn't know Sue, but Sue recognized me the first year I started doing the podcast. And we're in Portland at We were at Crush. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And some lady on a door stoop, she's like, hey, 
you're the podcast girl, right? You're with Wine Crush. And I like was looking around. I'm like, oh, my God, is she, is she talking to me? I don't know. Is she really talking to me? And here you are, like, four years later. And so much has changed. So much has changed. It was, yeah, it was, I don't know, that was kind of a cool moment, but kind of scared me at the same time. So thank you for that, I, th- I think. But I hope. Oh, I th- yeah. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting kind of how, you know, relationships kind of come around. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that you're now a friend of mine and I didn't know you before. So there we go. And I think since then, we'd seen each other at the symposium each year. And that was probably it. Probably so. Yeah. I kind of have a tendency to hibernate in my office or my house <laughs> and don't get out a lot as much as I should sometimes. So anyhow, thank you too, for joining us. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a drive from where you guys are at. And I so enjoyed my day up on the Bluebird okay. Hill Farm. It's so beautiful up there. So I want to kind of circle back and, and talk about kind of where your love for wine came from. Uh, Nick is your winemaker. And you and your husband actually bought your property several years ago and kind of have a story on how you even kind of landed there. So I'm going to sure. let you kind of take it back to the beginning and then we'll move into some other stuff. All right. Well, I think I've probably always loved wine. Started drinking wine probably before I was legally supposed to be drinking wine. <laughs> it and happens that sometimes. happens, I know. And uh, <laughs> 1995, I made my first wine from a kit and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I love doing this, but I really want to start with a grape and I want to do the whole process. And life goes on. And in 2000, I met my husband, Neil. He was teaching at Notre Dame in Northern Indiana and living in Southwest Michigan where they actually do grow wine grapes and make wine. And so when we were dating, we'd go out and taste wine and we became friends with people in the industry there and used to help out whatever they needed help with at the winery. Dear friends at Domain Berrien in between, uh, well, outside of Baroda, Michigan, in case anybody ever wants to stop in, they're making excellent wines. Wally and Katie would let us help out with whatever they needed help with, whether it was winery, vineyard, tasting room. And afterwards, Wally would always try to give us a case of wine for helping him. And we'd go, please, please, we're living vicariously through you. You don't need to give us anything. And he kept doing it. So we finally said, okay, if you need to give us something, give us grapes in the fall. And we'll try to make our own wine. And that's kind of how it started, early 2000s, Cab Franc, Southwest Michigan. And we've made wine every year since as a hobby up until 2014 and now professionally. So what took you from Southwest Michigan, which is cold? I'm assuming it's (laughs) cold. Hot in the summer, though. Yes. Cold. Like frigid, Arctic cold. Really really (laughs) cold, but it's a microclimate all along Lake Michigan shoreline. So the ground doesn't freeze really hard. So they're able to grow vinifera all up and down the Lake Michigan shoreline. what took us and or brought us to Oregon is my husband's professor. He was, as I said, teaching at Notre Dame when I met him. He took two years out of academia in, I think, 05 to 07 and worked for Kellogg. So we were still in Michigan, close to Battle Creek. And then he accepted a position at University of Florida, which took us to Florida for three years. 
No good wine vinifera. No good vinifera in Florida muscadine. You have to no good wine in tropical areas. No, exactly. (laughs) Muscadine, you have to sweeten it to make it palatable. So we made a blueberry port style wine while we were there because blueberries grow really well in northern Florida. And then he saw a position advertised at Oregon State that he told me he had zero chance of getting. And next thing I knew, we were moving to Oregon, (laughs) 2010. So we lived in Corvallis for a year to search for the perfect property. We were really only looking for a house that we loved with a great view, which we found in 2011, and we purchased the property. And uh, I asked Neil to kind of go along with how did we come up with the name. I asked Neil before we moved in, what are we going to call the farm? And he said, well, we're going to call it Bluebird Hill. And I looked at him (laughs) puzzled because I hadn't seen any bluebirds the day we looked at the house. And he said, trust me, habitat looks right. And the day we moved in, we must have saw a dozen on the property. So it's appropriately named. How fun. That's kind of cool. I mean, kind of having that visionary before you actually see the vision, right? Mm -hmm. And it does fit. And I think when I was there, there there was literally bluebirds everywhere so but you had to identify for him because you know (laughs) when you're looking for a bluebird you're looking for this kind of this bright ray of blue flying through the sky and these ones are a little bit more discreet as far as how they're colored until they take off yes and And then then they're they're this beautiful flash of blue and they're really small they're smaller than you think yes because i think you i think traditionally i mean i've grown up in oregon but you think bluebird and you think blue jay yeah. And the blue jays scrub, are scrub jay yes. or stellar jay. Yeah. Yep. And they're much larger than the actual little bluebirds themselves yeah. that are very cute and petite. So so you're in Monroe, which most people don't know um, where that's at because it's kind of a little stop in the road. But you are south of Corvallis. You are north of Eugene yep. on the west side of 99, correct? Correct. So you just take a beautiful little scenic drive up the hill and you come to the farm. That's right. And we're really tucked into the beginning of the coastal range. So we sit up about 600 feet. We have an amazing view of the valley and the Cascades off to the east and the coastals off to the west. And that was really what drew us to the property. And as time went on, uh, well, the property, to step back for a second, the property is almost six acres Four acres of it, when we purchased the property, was covered with overgrown Christmas trees. So we really couldn't see the slope of the land or the potential of the land until we started clearing trees. And that's what Neil and I did for fun on weekends the first two years that we lived in the house. I don't know if I'd call that fun, but everybody has their own definition of what fun is. I guess you can, when you can see kind of the forest through the trees, you could see what the end result's yeah. going to be and and kind of where it would go from there, which is kind of where your dream started in Michigan with having your own vineyard and kind of going from there. So after you got the trees cleared, yes, how long did it take you to start planting the vineyard? So in 2013, we planted a quarter of an acre of Pomard clone of Pinot Noir because that happened to be our favorite standalone clone to make wine with. And we'd been making a barrel of Pomard clone Pinot Noir every year since we moved to Oregon. So for three years. And we thought, okay, we'll plant this quarter of an acre and that'll be enough. We can make a barrel of Pinot Noir every fall. It's going to be our hobby vineyard. 
And somewhere between that spring of 2013 and that fall, um, we like to say we conked our heads together and decided we were going to go for it and become a commercial winery. So we started planting in earnest in 2014. We planted 2,500 vines on the north side of our house. And in 2015, 1,750 vines on the south side of our house. And then in 16 and 17, Chardonnay along the drive. So now we have 5,500 vines shoehorned into three and a quarter acres. So our spacing is really tight, five by five, five feet between vines, five feet between rows. And as Nick can attest, we have a we have a narrow gauge Kubota tractor that he drives up and down those rows as he manages that vineyard. So it's pretty tight. Yeah, since they're five by five, obviously the the vines are shorter too. So that's yeah. the that's the hardest part <laughs> is harvesting at a very low height. Yes. So, oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, you don't really even think of that when, you know, when you're looking at a vineyard, you you know, as a consumer, I mean, you're looking at the beauty of what the vineyard is. You're not looking at the spacing between the vines themselves or the rows or how high the, you know, the actual canopy is and all that stuff. So, yeah, I can imagine where that could be maybe a little <laughs> bit difficult to have little kind of short stubby vines. Yeah. 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 It's hard on the back. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. What's the plan for the vineyard here going forward? Is there any more room for any more vines? Uh, definitely not going to plant <laughs> any more vines. We have maximized our space as far as the winery goes, barrel room, case storage room. We bottled about 1,200 cases this past year and anticipate about the same for this year. And I think that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. So we don't plan to expand production at all. That's still a lot. I mean, 1,200 cases. I mean, it's one thing to make it. It's another thing to sell it. Um, and having, you know, a tasting room yeah. and, you know, you have your tasting porch as well, which is just really fun <laughs> to sit on the outside of the house and kind of look over everything. Before we get into the actual wine itself, I want to introduce Nick because if I remember, Nick was actually a student of your husband's at Oregon State. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> See, I remember small details, and even though it's been six months. But you also have a lot of connections here locally with different wineries that you've worked for as far as like interning and whatever you were doing with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I uh, started my journey into the wine industry in 2014. So I started school at Oregon State in 2012, initially wanting to enter the the brewing scene because that was kind of the peak of everything. Um, and then uh, I found an internship with A to Z Wineworks and started with them in the bottling line in the summer of 2014. And then they asked me to stay on for the harvest. So I took that fall term off of 2014 and stayed on with them for the full harvest. And that's nothing like going to the smallest winery in the state no. to start your intern. <laughs> no, and I stayed, so it was obviously really a good experience. Yeah. No, really, the people were the thing that drew me to it all. They were so kind and inviting and really fun to work with. And I'd never worked like that in my life up until that point. So they're the reason I'm still here. <laughs> You know, it takes that one person, whether it's that mentor, that experience, that whatever, to kind of help kind of transition and find your path in life. And sometimes you find it in the least expected places. Yeah, yeah. So, and they are a very large winery. I was being very facetious <laughs> yeah. for those that don't know who A to Z Wineworks is. They are probably one of the largest in the state. Yeah, yeah. I think last time I heard their case count was over 500,000. Wow. Yes. So they've grown a lot since I was there in 2014. 
Yes. So that that's where I was. And they asked me to return in 2015 to intern in their vineyards. So I got to see a little bit of that side because I still wasn't sure at that point whether or not I wanted to stay in the wine industry or like try out the brewing scene as well, just as, you know, see what each side was like. Um, I'm glad that they asked me back to work with them in the vineyards because now I've seen both sides and I knew I didn't want a desk job, but I can be in both places. I can be in the winery or in the vineyard, and I'm really happy doing both. And I think your personality figures out where you're strongest at, and usually it's one or the other. Sure. But, but sometimes you <gasps> do find that special person, maybe, that loves both sides and can you know really enjoy both sides. Because not everybody likes to be outside in the weather. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I've always felt I've been like a jack-of-all-trades kind of uh person. So the wine industry was like a natural fit, even though I didn't anticipate going into it when I came to college. I think anybody that enters college starts with one idea and completely leaves with another one. Because I was going to be a marine zoologist and ended up a (laughs) cop (laughs) who is now an insurance agent who does wine So and a podcast. So, I mean, marine zoologist gets seasick bad choice. <laughs> I don't know. Insurance works okay. And so does this podcast. It's pretty fun. Wine industry is not something I anticipated either. And I love it. So kudos to you for sticking it out. And I love beer too. So there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. Either. Yeah. We got to know Nick um, through the program at Oregon State because my husband is a professor in that same department. And our first two years of commercial production, we hired a winemaking consultant, Bobby Moy who now has his own label in Napa. It's called Chiron. And he was our winemaking consultant for our first two vintages. And Nick actually came the second year that Bobby was with us, so Mm. 2016, and interned with us. So he got to work with Bobby, too. Right. And then after Nick graduated, we asked him if he'd be interested in coming to work for us. Mm -hmm. And so he was with us in 2018. And left us in 2019, broke our hearts. Shame <laughs> on you, Nick. I did a little stint in the Idaho wine industry to just to be closer to family because I'm originally from Ontario, Oregon, Eastern Oregon. So I uh, hung out in the Treasure Valley wine scene for uh, part of the year. And then I ended up coming back in 2019. And we're so glad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad too. So that we... Uh, being such a small winery, we really only have one full-time position, and Nick fits that position perfectly. He really fills out, rounds out our winemaking team. I don't know how we do it without him now. We have similar palettes, I think, and I we, say that, we work yeah. with the wine together. So It's, you know, again, things are serendipitous sometimes, and sometimes yeah. you have to have that separation to come back together. So yeah, with that, I want to pause right there because... I have lots of questions about the wine and they're all going to run together. So let's refill and take a break really quick and we will be right back with more wine. We are... Back. It's our last segment. We are going to talk about some wine. I want to talk about the questions that I um, have scrambling in my brain um, about location, 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 <laughs> because that's really what it's all about, right? With you being as far south as you are 
and mm-hmm. as far into the Cascades as you are, how does it, the weather, the the temperature, everything down that direction affect the vineyard and then in turn affect the wine? Nick, you want to take this one? <laughs> I can see his eyes rolling back in the back of his head. Oh, He's now, thinking that, of a that, great yeah. answer. Yeah, now, now I'm thinking of what, what the weather's like. You know, we get... On the top of the hill, it's really nice exposure. We're at a range of 450 to 700 feet in elevation from the the top to the bottom of the vineyard or the bottom to the top. The exposure in terms of the sun is intense because we're on southeast facing hillside on the south block. And then on the north block, we get a little bit more shading um, because it's north west facing so those kind of play into you know our overall style of wine that we're able to produce there but so tucked into the cascades yeah. you know you are kind of on that further west side to where you're not out in the middle of the valley where you don't get a lot of the big shadows i mean you have different wind patterns that come kind of down over the the mountains as well cut in Yes, cut in. Did I say Cascades or Coastals? Yeah, yeah, the Coastals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Coastal Range. Yeah, we pick up some of the weather from the Coastal Range, but overall, I think the hillside is our biggest play in how uh, the wine is shaped. We don't have too big of extremes in terms of cold weather. I mean, it's only 500 to 700 feet elevation. And then in terms of the heat, yes, our southeast-facing slope or block does get a lot of heat units, but it's it's fairly moderate. I think a lot of people think that the South Willamette Valley gets a big swing in the temperature, but it's not to the extremes it is really there. It seems like if you go a little bit further south, like more like Roseburg, Umpqua yes. Valley, yeah. that's where your heat For units sure. are really going to yeah. change in your climate. So it really kind of does weird things, good things to the grapes and then in turn to the wine. So I was just wondering. Well, we have a nice cool breeze from the west off of the ocean because we're only 50 miles from the ocean that picks up around 7 o'clock at night and cools everything down. It may be 85 in the daytime, afternoon high, and cools down to the 50s overnight, which Pinot Noir loves. Yes, it does. Right, it retains the acid. Yeah, I want to talk about the wines, but I'm going to say you held a fairly tight secret when I was there because I was there on like a Thursday and we went through the whole lineup of wine and we tasted. And then I see the next day that you've gotten like this great point and write up in the the whatever magazine it was. And I think I texted you. I'm like, Sue, <laughs> you didn't spill any of the beans at all. I'm just there. And now you guys have gotten this really great honor. So oh. let's talk about that. And then I want to kind of go into the wines, the style of wines, you know, what you're serving, because you have quite a lineup that you guys are yeah, um, sure. really putting out there. <laughs> for, to, for, for a everyone. small winery, yes, yeah, we, we do. do. <laughs> yes, I was really impressed and surprised. 12 to well, 14 we, on a yeah, you know, four, 14 given season. this summer. Yeah. So we make everything really small lot. We were super excited in February of this year, which was way before you came, to hear back from wine enthusiasts and see our scores. Because Neil and I can remember when we first started this adventure, looking at each other and saying, oh, if we could get a 90-point score, if we could just ever get that, that was where our bar was. We opened the email in February, and all of the Pinots that were currently pouring in the tasting room were rated 92 to 94 points. 
What we brought today is our South Block Reserve Pinot Noir, and it scored the highest, it's, 94 points yes. in wine enthusiasts. So, it's really good. So thank you for bringing now, that. You're welcome. Yes. Now our bar is a little higher. So <laughs> yeah, and, and, <laughs> we were spoiled. Um, it got uh, double gold at Sabre Northwest. And recently we just heard back, they published an article in December and we already knew what our medal was, but we had no idea where they'd scored it. And it actually scored 96 points there and was the second highest wine in the competition. That's so not so bad for a small little winery not, in the coastal range. Mm-hmm. Not too bad. We're pretty excited and pinching ourselves every day. So it's interesting when you kind of go from hobbyist in Michigan and then you go to Blueberry Port in Florida. <laughs> yeah. And then yes. you randomly end up in Oregon um, in the mid Willamette Valley on some job your husband had no chance of getting that he ended up pulling. Now you have these beautiful wines that you're making and you're scoring high points in, you know, these different competitions. You're getting golds. And I don't know. What's next? Oh, to keep on going and keep on making the best wine that we possibly can. And with Nick's help, we're certainly going to do that. That's a pretty good goal. And I I think it's a, I mean, I hate to say it's a reachable goal, but it's just kind of keeping on with what you're doing, right? Absolutely. And, And to say one thing about the South Willamette Valley, people talk a lot about the North Willamette and the Eola Hills area. But for years and years, broadly, vineyards had the highest scoring Pinot Noir in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And that's and just down the one, road, one right? hill east of us. Yeah. So they're we close. can do great things in the South Valley, too. I think it's kind yeah. of a hidden gem that people just don't realize there's so many, you know, great little um, spots down there. And it's becoming more prolific, I think, as yeah, time goes absolutely. on. Absolutely. So let's yeah. talk about this lineup of 12 or 14 wines that... <laughs> Like, I, I think I walked up and met you both, and then you handed me a sheet and like, here, pick what you want to taste. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's two-sided. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I mean, I yeah. told you, I'm like, pick your favorites and then put them in a glass, and right. then I'm good with that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was. Everything I had was, it was. I think you had all 14 that day. I think I don't did. think yeah. we did, because I would not have driven home <laughs> if I had all 14. There just was no way. But very good lie. I'm, you know, that was a good try. Yeah. As an insurance agent, I should not be caught driving drunk. It's really <laughs> frowned upon greatly in a lot of circles. So, <laughs> so let's talk about everything that you have because there there was a, a large array of things. Sure, yeah. Sure. yeah. So, what all are you doing? So we produce a Pinot Gris, which we're sold out of until we bottle in the spring. We have a Chardonnay and a Reserve Chardonnay. Our Chardonnay, 2019 Chardonnay, received a gold medal at San Francisco Chronicle this year, or actually it was last year, 2021, and our reserve was a 93-pointer in Wine Enthusiast. And then we actually made, in 2020, a rosé and what we call a Blanc de Pinot Noir, which is kind of a coppery color, not exactly white. But uh, as winemakers, we could have probably taken that color out and made a true Blanc de Pinot Noir but we were afraid we'd lose some of those flavors and aromas that we were really loving in that wine. Um, The Blanc de Pinot Noir scored a 90-point in Wine Enthusiast and our Rosé an 89 points. Then we have four Pinot Noirs, our flagship Pinot Noir, 
and three reserves. Two are estate reserve wines, and one is 100% Zenith Vineyard Pinot Noir. Zenith is up in Eola Hills and one of the top five vineyards in Oregon, and we've been lucky enough to be able to source fruit from them since 2014, our very first commercial Pinot Noir. Then we've also, we also have a red wine blend, which is 60% Syrah from Horse Seven Hills and 40% Pinot Noir. And then the straight Syrah, Horse Seven Hills. And currently, and we're almost sold out, we have a dessert wine that is made from Pinot Gris and Rainier Cherry which won a gold and a double gold. I think I had that. I think that was the end of my line that day. It's a good I, place to finish. It, yeah, yeah. What, it was not a bad place to finish for sure. And it was very surprising. Like, I mean, just that cherry and the, you know, I'm not usually a big sweet wine, you know, drinker necessarily, but I was really, if I remember, it was really quite delicious. Thank yeah. you. So, yes. So where are we going to find you when we need to look for you and come visit? Well, you can find us at, what's our address? 25059 Larson Road in Monroe. Um, our website is www.bluebirdhillsellers.wine. And you can check us there. You can find us on Twitter. Instagram at BBH Alpine. Or just you know look up Bluebird Hill Sellers. And we're in a couple of the markets around Corvallis. And we're hoping to uh, expand. So we we're Market also, of choice, yes. Um, the co-op, and yeah, we're looking to expand our range there. So we self-distribute in Oregon. Other than out on the coast, we do have a distributor out on the coast. We're in Fresh Market in Cannon Beach, and we're also in the wine shops in Eugene. And like Nick says, hoping to expand further out into Oregon. It's fun seeing these small wineries kind of in these fun little places that you kind of pop up, whether it's a wine shop or a restaurant or, you know, whatever. I always kind of get a thrill when I go somewhere and order a meal. And I don't always order wine in a restaurant because I just don't. But I love seeing friends and clients and whatever else on these wine lists and go, oh, my God, they made it. They're sure. here. Yeah. 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 It's so cool how you get different places. So, okay, now the question, right? The, the oh. question that ends oh, the day, gosh. and I'm going to combine a couple of them because I always like the interest and the things. So I'm going to give you each a question, and it's kind of a combined question because I always like to know who you're going to, who the most interesting person that you'd ever like to drink wine with, dead, alive, famous, can't be your spouse. That's not anywhere near as fun, <laughs> um, or significant other. And then what your worst pairing of wine and food was, and what your favorite pairing of wine and food was. Hmm. Boy, those are separate. I mean, you, three, you three different the, ones. Wait, pick one or do it. Answer all three. <laughs> I think you should just answer all three. <laughs> or if I really stump you, just choose whatever's okay. the most interesting okay. and fun. Wow, most interesting person. You're you, going to go first? You had 25 <laughs> minutes to think of a person because you heard I, me I, as Todd. <laughs> <laughs> he was on the spot too. Elvis Costello, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just in the theme of all the music we've been thinking about today, I'm going to gonna name my favorite artist, John Mayer. So I, I, would, I would like I to um, have a glass of wine with him and just talk about his, you know, his, the way his processes work, how he got into guitar playing and stuff like that. I think I, I would... I mirror him and, you know, you, you always find this artist that you, th you, you can relate to on, on some kind of level. So I think um, that would be an interesting evening or conversation to have. 
man, I need to think deep about who I think I relate to music-wise because whoever's coming to the top snacks. of my mind right now is probably not somebody I should mention out loud because it might give you a wrong color of my life. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. No judgment. This is uh, no let's, no let's judgment. Talk, at let's talk all. about it after okay. after we turn uh, off the recording. <laughs> yes, this isn't about me today. This is about you. Since we're going to go with music, I think I'd like to talk to Pink because she's now a wine grower and oh, a yeah. winemaker, and I think it would be fascinating to hear her story. That is a great, great answer. And Thank Pink, you. I hope you're going to listen to this because I'm going to send it to you, even though we are not friends yet. <laughs> yet. And I've said this for years, that we are not friends, but she will be my friend someday. She just doesn't know it yet. She seems pretty down to earth. I know. I'd like to be friends yeah. with she's her, pretty, too. She's pretty kick-ass from yep. what I can kind of tell. Just down to earth, hardworking. I love it. Everything about what she does. Okay. So now let's talk food. So we got your music people in place. Everybody has a weird paired story of something they've had that just, you know, whether it's Chex Mix and and bubbles or... <laughs> There's one that like automatically comes to mind, even though it's probably not the worst one I've had, but I was at this winery once and they had a cheddar goldfish as a snack and like dry red wine with dry cheddar goldfish was that sounds not yucky. a great combination. <laughs> It was like funky. It went with the vibe of the winery, but it was not fun <laughs> to have. Not tasty. Yeah. Okay, so you're up with the b the best food with the best pairing. Oh, the best food yep. with the best He just pairing. took the weirdest oh, and the worst. Okay. So we'll, okay. we'll go with Thank you, we'll, Nick. We'll shorten yeah. it a little bit. Because I didn't have one for the other way. <laughs> so I all of our trips to France, every meal with every wine that we had has to be my best pairing. I'm going to say that's they're almost just, cheating, but I'm going I'm to take sorry, that. But, and I can't pull one particular instance out because they've all been so fabulous. I, There's could, I could totally something see about that. French food. Foie gras. Uh, the comfy. Todd yes. knows. <laughs> Todd knows. <laughs> and every wine I've had there, my all-time ultimate wine tasting experience happened in Burgundy. So that. Uh, has a place close to my heart. I'm going to take that. I love that very much because I'm. That's on my. It's on my bucket list too. You I have not to been go. to France. I've been all the way around France, but I've not been in France yet. So that's a that's coming soon. Talk to me before you go. Oh, you can I'll have some recommendations. It, yes, hopefully next year. So, anyhow, thank you too so much for driving the hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes all the way up here to join us for the day. We got some good food waiting for us outside the door. So. We're going to say thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll chat real soon. Heidi, All thanks right. for hosting us. We well, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Great fun. Cheers. <laughs>